Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Well, I didn't actually expect that bumper. Aloha! Uh, tonight on BC Radio Live, we've got music, minds, and money. Uh, first up, we're going to hear from Arden Kaywin, whose new album is called The Elephant in the Room. And we also plan to chat with Jonathan Fast, author of a book titled Ceremonial Violence, A Psychological Explanation of School Shootings. And finally, we hope to talk to economic guru Efren Taylor, author of Three Steps to Financial Recovery. Today is Wednesday, December 3rd, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and chief geek at BC Magazine, and I'm joined tonight by Eric Olson and Lisa McKay. Eric is BC Magazine's founder and publisher, and Lisa is BC Magazine's executive editor. Hello, guys. What's happening? Um, not all that much. It's uh, it's December. Can you believe this? No, it's it it time really really does fly. It just seems like every year, once you hit Halloween, it's like it's like you're on a slip and slide. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just boom, you're gone from Halloween to Christmas. It's just you know, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's just the beginning of December. But on the other hand, I was just talking to my son who was who was with us in uh, Arizona we had a rare gathering of of all four of the kids last week and that was of course a lot of fun we were visiting my parents condo near uh, Scottsdale and it was uh, actually the weather was not that great but it was still really fun it was nice the first few days but then it rained not not that it was ever cold or anything but uh, compared to Ohio when we left uh, a week ago, Friday, we literally left in a blizzard. Uh, oh. No exaggeration, and uh, and so it, it was really nice to get away. Anyway, uh, uh, you know, I was talking to him today, my son, and for the first time since we got back last Friday, and uh, he let us know that oh man, he wasn't going to. We weren't going to see him again till literally Christmas Day, and I was, oh, you know, well, that's uh, that sucks. But then I'm looking at the calendar, and it's, you know, it's only three weeks. So yeah, it's been crazy. Uh, it it really it, it's amazing. We've talked about this before when we do holiday stuff on the site and whatnot. But you have this kind of odd blending now uh, between Halloween and Christmas, and poor Thanksgiving mm-hmm. has sort of gotten the <laughs> shaft. Because it's such a well, it's such a reticent holiday, you know. Speaking of uh, holiday features on the side, I should mention real quick, and I know we do want to get on with the show, but uh, we've got a holiday special uh, that's in place right now at Blog Critics. If you go to blogcritics.org, uh, you can't help but see the festive holiday decorations. I would think uh, there's uh, the banner's been uh, reskinned a little bit. You can click to get through to the holiday special. We've got all kinds of articles. Uh, on things from an atheist guide to Christmas to how to celebrate Advent during Christmas and gift guides and I'm sure we'll have some Hanukkah and Kwanzaa stuff in there before the uh, before the season's over. So be sure to check it out. Heck yeah! And, uh, 
<laughs> By the way, did we go did we go live on Technorati yet? Uh, no, it looks like uh, although our team has done everything that we needed to do, uh, there were certain other technical resources that uh, just couldn't quite deliver in time. So no later than 10 a.m. Pacific tomorrow is what I've been told. Ah, well, that's that's not bad. But it's now out of our hands and in the hands of some other engineers. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, that'll be exciting. Indeed. I was hoping that we'd be able to announce it tonight, but I got the word just about seven minutes or so before we went live. So, ah, well. Anyway, this uh, this is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And co-hosting with Eric and Lisa, I'm Philip. Let's, uh, let's start with a little musical sample. This is called Let It Go. of Let It Go from Arden Kalin. It's a track from her new album called The Elephant in the Room. And the website is ardenkaywin.com. That's the A-R-D-E-N-K-A-Y-W-I-N.com. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Arden. Hi, thank you. How are you? This is I'm Eric Olson, good. and that was Philip, and also with us is Lisa. Great to talk to you. You too. Hello, hello. What a sweet speaking voice you have, very similar <laughs> to your singing voice. That's Aww, fairly unusual. Really? Yeah. I mean, we talked to someone you know, in fact. We, uh, it was really interesting just to see how these connections, it was, you know, it was not, nothing intentional. But uh, a few weeks ago on the show, we had Delaney Gibson. Oh, that's so funny. Did she? Do you know the connection? She used to sing backup for me. I, she said that. We were asking, so you know, what, where, when she had toured and who she toured with. And she did a <laughs> an interesting show with, wasn't it Barbara Streisand, I think, and someone else? Uh, but that was like a one-off thing. And then she said she had toured with you. And I said, gosh, that name is really familiar because I had just received your your uh, second CD, and I went back and looked. I have your first CD. Yeah, that's so funny. It is a small, small world. It is. I guess you're both L.A.-based, and you both have red hair. Yes, this is true. 
<laughs> well, man, I, I think you've really grown. I was I, I went back and listened to the to the first one. I'd I remember liking it when I first looked at. It, I'm looking at the cover now, and when I first got it, yeah, you know, kind of with no warning, I thought the artist was Arden. And the album title was Kwin because the 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 Arden is so much bigger print, and I thought, what an odd name for the album title, Kwin. <laughs> oh, you mean Arden. my old album? The old yeah, album. your first one. Yeah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. the first one. Because I went back to check it out, but you've really grown. I think it's really just what two years between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, two. That was this, 2006. This one is. I mean, that one was great, and I and I loved the single, and I, the, I know it. Uh, Got a lot of attention, me with me, uh, but I think this one really is just a whole nother league, and uh, the production is outstanding. I mean, it sounds absolutely, you know, highest end, uh, you know, major label, and I mean that in a positive sense. Yeah, no, uh, I, yeah. Uh, recording value, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just, you, you sound like you're really confident, and you just really hit a new level. Does that make Thank sense? You. I, I, yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm, it's the ultimate compliment. I, so I appreciate that. Thank you. I, you know, I think the difference was me really getting to know myself more as a writer and as a songwriter. And, um, you know, the first record, I, uh, I wrote all the songs, you know, on my own, um, but I wasn't involved in the production or arranging. I had a wonderful producer, Rudy Hauserman, and I basically gave him piano vocal originals, and I said, here, these are the artists that I like, and I kind of want to be in this vein, in this genre, you know, go. What and did you tell so, him? Who did you tell him? Excuse me. You I'm know, at the really time, curious. At the time, I really, I really liked um, – Michelle Branch and Vanessa Carlton, and I kind of saw myself in that vein. And, you know, I think Quarter Life Crisis... Except better. Thank you. (laughs) I think Quarter Life Crisis kind of came out in that same genre. I mean, if you liked Michelle Branch at that time, you would have liked that record, my Quarter Life Crisis record. Um, But in the meantime, you know, I wasn't involved in any of the production or arranging of those tunes. Um, I just wrote them and, you know, sang on them. But um, when... In the meantime, in the two years that passed, I, you know, met a bunch of other um, writers and producers in LA, and you know, got involved kind of in that in that kind of community here in town, and started collaborating with people, and also just expanding my horizons. What I was listening to, what I liked, and really, I think, found my sound as a songwriter and as a singer. And so this time with this record. Um, I knew that I wanted to collaborate. I knew that I didn't want to write it on my own because I just found that I loved collaborating as a, as a process. Writing with somebody else is just, to me, infinitely more like mind-blowing and wonderful, and I never want to write by myself ever again because it just brings out, writing with somebody else, I think, brings out the best in both partners, especially if you're writing with somebody who you're friends with, who you know, you know, there's no politeness. You can, and you each get out of your own idiom and out of your box so you can say, you know, oh, you did that all over your last record. We're not doing that this time. You know, let's stretch our boundaries. And what you end up with is so much greater and more you than you ever would have been on your own. At least that's how it was in my case. Um, and working with people who are not only writers but producers as well, we produced and arranged the tracks um, you know, as we were writing them, and I was involved in every process, every step of the way. Uh, and this time it wasn't like I want to sound like this artist or I want to sound like that artist. It was 
me sounding like me. I mean, I'm sure you've listened to the to Elephant in the Room and the record. It's it's not like anything that you can you can't say. Well, it's Michelle Branch or it's Feist or it's Alanis Morissette. I mean, there are elements of all of those people that I love, but it is truly my sound, and I like that it can't necessarily be pegged. You know. Well, it's it's. It's your own thing, and we ought to actually try to uh, get in a little bit more of that sound. Uh, let me play another shorter uh, sample from the album so we can make sure that we, uh, we let people hear you. Uh, this is Butterflies 2.0. Butterflies 2.0 from The Elephant in the Room, which is the new album from Arden Kaywin, and it's available from ardenkaywin.com, as well as Amazon, iTunes, all the usual places. Mm-hmm. And besides your sound evolving and becoming more you, uh, which is somewhat <laughs> somewhat contradictory considering you wrote with uh, Eve Nelson and Ziv, right? Is that, yes. is that how I pronounce uh, Z-I-V? Ziv. Like uh, Steve, oh, but with a Z. Z. Ooh, I like that. It's very European. <laughs> Your look is different. You're so mod. <laughs> yeah, everything, you know, two years goes by and you, you uh, everything changes. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm one of those people who's never really satisfied with one style. Like, I, I'm constantly changing, like... When I was when I was in my early early twenties, I would change my hair color all the time. You know, so I I'm I'm never stationary, I guess you could say. Well, that's the artiste in you, I would say. <laughs> and I think maybe your classical background, uh, which you, you have extensive classical training, as I understand, I think that comes through more on this one too. Yeah, you think? Uh huh. Yeah, I, I mean, it's something that I I don't think consciously. I, I don't think about consciously when I'm writing, but I mean, I have a degree from Oberlin Conservatory and a degree from the Manhattan School of Music for grad school. And so, I mean, I'm so studied in classical music that I think it, I can't help but be influenced in my writing even when I'm not thinking about it, you know. You are steeped. <laughs> well, I used to be, you know, in class studying Mozart and Strauss and, you know, Wagner. And, and then I would go into the practice room and I would sit there for, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour before I'd practice just writing little pop songs that nobody knew about. And I wouldn't play them for anybody because, you know, when you're doing classical music, it's kind of looked down upon, sort of. You don't tell anyone that you write pop songs, you know. So I would go sneak off into the practice room and write pop it's songs. It's frivolous. <laughs> um, little did I know that this would be what I was doing now. You're calling, as it were. Hey, you have a live date coming up too, right? 
Yeah, Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles, uh, December 18th at 9 p.m. It's a Thursday. Um, Hotel Cafe, for those people listening who don't know, is one of the most cool venues in Los Angeles. Um, I don't know if you've – have you heard about it, Eric? Or I have heard about it, but I have not been there. Yeah, it's really one of the best sort of live music listening rooms in – in the country, I would say, and they do a tour every year, the Hotel Cafe tour, where they go to the East Coast and I think the Midwest, so people around the country are starting to get to know Hotel Cafe artists, but they they kind of sprung onto the scene about, I don't know, four years ago, I guess, because a bunch of artists who were on the Garden State soundtrack um, oh, yes. became, you know, they used to play at Hotel Cafe all the time, and then Garden State soundtrack came out, and they became really big, and so a lot of people started coming to Hotel Cafe, so... Uh, but, yeah, so anyone who's in L.A., um, come down on the 18th. We're going to do stuff from the new record, and, I don't know, there might be a little holiday sing-along <laughs> thrown in there for fun. <laughs> well, I would love to be there personally. I was going through your site, which is really great, by the way. It's super well done. There's all kinds of information, pictures, music, the works. It's very well organized. It's it's uh, really a good site. And, uh, you know, I was, I was seeing all the performance uh, um, shots and thinking, gosh, I'd I'd really like to be there. Yeah, where are you guys located? You're on the East Coast, aren't you? I'm in Cleveland. Phillips in, in Cleveland. Dallas, and Lisa's in so, Connecticut. So how's that? All over the place. You need to tour. You need to tour. I know. I really do. Well, it is. It's in the works for um, early spring. So probably March, April coming up of 2009. Well, and, we're, um, we're always. We're always most impressed when a tour manages to hit New Haven, Dallas, and Cleveland. That that was really <laughs> not about the trifecta. <laughs> well, I will tell you this much: my brother went to school in Dallas, so there's a lot of friends there. They're you know pulling for me to come there. My boyfriend went to school in New Haven, so there's a lot of connections there. So they're pulling for me to come there, and I, you know, being an Oberlin grad, yes. Is, you know, a place that I know well, so there is a whole connection there. So I wouldn't put it past, you know, having a good chance of hitting those cities. Wow. Any luck. That is super well, cool. Un- unfortunately, our, our time has, uh, has come to a close, actually a little bit past, and I still have one more sample from the album I want to play. Always uh, too soon. Uh, children. Uh, yeah, it is. It is too soon. When you tour, we'll have to talk to you again, Arden. Absolutely. Uh, but in the meantime, here's a little sample of, uh, of another song from the album called Grand Soiree. I really love that song. I'm not even quite sure why. It's just awesome. Anyway, that was Grand Soiree from Arden Kaywin's new album called The Elephant in the Room. It is available now at uh, Amazon, iTunes, and you can get there from ardenkaywin.com. That's A-R-D-E-N-K-A-Y-W-I-N.com. Thanks for talking with us tonight, Arden. Oh, thanks, guys. Happy holidays, everyone.
Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Great stuff. Well, BC Radio Live is a production of blogcritics.org and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio with Eric and Lisa. I'm Philip. Jonathan Fast is an associate professor at Yeshiva University. He's written extensively about aggression and adolescence, and his latest book is called Ceremonial Violence, A Psychological Explanation of School Shootings. And there is a corresponding website, uh, ceremonialviolence.com. He is here to talk about with us right now. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Jonathan. Hi, is this Philip? Uh, this is Philip, yes. How are you, Philip? And uh, you'll also probably hear from Eric and maybe even Lisa before the show is over. We, uh, Man, you never know. That's <laughs> there you go. Strange okay. things well, well, happen. Cool. <laughs> I have to admit that when I, when I see the subtitle of, of your book, I, I'm tempted to ask how much more complex is, is the, the phenomenon of school shootings than, you know, kids get beat up on and decide they can't take it and shoot. Well, okay, me, I'm assuming it's a little more detailed than that, right? You, you mean why, why bother exploring it any farther than that, or is there more going on than that? Yeah, is there more going on than that? I mean, I think well, anything, anything that takes a life is worth exploring as, as far as it needs to be explored, absolutely. But well, why don't is you it look more complex than that? I mean, think about how many kids get beat up in school, right? I, I was one of them. I remember this, yes. I, I was a lot. <laughs> A lot, and yeah, the number yeah. of kids who commit school shootings is relatively small. I think one mm-hmm. of the great mysteries is why there isn't a lot more of this going on uh, in a country of our size. But Wait a minute, uh, I have to interject. Philip, weren't you homeschooled? Uh, I was homeschooled in part as in a point. result <laughs> of getting... <laughs> I was going to say, well, your brothers and sisters were beating you up? <laughs> Well, after getting my butt kicked on the way to and from school every day for a couple of years, uh, eventually, yes, I, I was homeschooled, but only only once I hit, uh, I guess, junior high. Well, that's terrible. I'm... The ultimate homeschooling would be the mother who is, who is so thoughtful that she brings in a bully once in a while. So you have that. <laughs> <laughs> for a little social training. Yeah. yeah. How to, how to deal with aggression. Nice. And then you have home shootings. No, so, so, so the issue is, the issue is there are many people who fit, who seem to superficially maybe then fit the uh, the, the stereotype that we all got after Columbine or, or after other shootings. But obviously, most of us don't pick up guns and and massacre people. Right, and that's that's sort of the interesting thing. These are kids who have had terrible lives, um, who have been bullied and alienated, most of them, and have just been through awful experiences. And if they were regular kids, they would probably sneak off to a corner and commit suicide. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry that we have to move into such a grim topic because it sounded like everyone was having such a good time. <laughs> and I, I really like that singer, but this is, it's really a very sad and tragic topic. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death among adolescents. And these would be suicides, except that they have uh, what uh, Otto Kerning referred to as malignant narcissism. They have to be the center of attention. They have enormous craving for attention. And so they want to go out with a huge, what I refer to as an act of ceremonial violence. So they arrange, um, they arrange to do it in school, which is the center of the community and the place where they can get the most attention. 
um, and they invite their friends to come. In one of the shootings, in the even Ramsey shooting in Alaska, he actually invited 25 of his friends um, to to observe the shooting from a safe place. Um, so, and they do public relations. They do a, a promotion. Uh, they send out a publicity pack. Um, in with the Columbine shooting, they made six hours of movies, um, which they thought were going to be released to the public. Um, and in the Virginia Tech shooting, with the most horrible one to date, um, the guy actually made a publicity packet with a CD with pictures of himself looking menacing. And if you recall, he committed the first shooting in the morning, and then he sent out the pack in the mail to NBC News, and then he continued the shooting. So he actually interrupted his shooting to send out the publicity package. The most um, bizarre example of that was probably the Brenda Spencer shooting, which took place in 1976 in, uh, in San Diego. Um, and what she did was she uh, arranged a sniper attack on the school across the street. Um, her father had given her a rifle and 100 rounds of ammunition for Christmas. Um, so she broke through the glass pane in the door and started shooting at the elementary school across the street. And when the San Diego paper heard about it, um, one of the reporters started using his reverse directory to contact the homes around the school to find out any information they could about the shooting. And the first person he called was Brenda, who was home alone. So she answered the phone, and she said, yes, there's a school shooting going on, and uh, the, the shooter is at such and such a house. And he said, well, isn't that your address? And she said, well, I guess it is. And she hung up sort of coyly. And he called her back, and he said, well, you know, are you the shooter? And she admitted that she was. And then she gave an interview um, about a 10-minute interview over the phone, and then she uh, said, I have to hang up now. I have to go shoot some more pigs, as they called police at that time. Um, so th there's an enormous hunger for attention in these school shootings. Wasn't that the I Don't Like Mondays? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. that's the one. Do you know what band yeah. it was? Yeah, it was the Boomtown Boom Rat. I'm impressed. Oh, man, we know <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Well, I, see, I, I lived in San Diego. That's where that's part one of the places I used to get beaten up. So, uh, wow. you know, okay. <laughs> not so, near that. So what school, we're though. talking about is that there was an an Irish new wave band, I think, called the Boomtown Rats that re that heard about this and recorded a song called "I Hate Mondays" because the reporter asked Brenda why she was uh, why she was shooting at them, and she said, well, it's Monday, and I hate Mondays. Doesn't everybody hate Mondays? I thought this would liven things up a little bit. So what she was doing when she said this, she was establishing herself as, as a badass, um, which is the kind of the positive identity um, that these teenagers try to establish for themselves. And that's sort of the third area here is that the reason why these all happen while people are teenagers is because that's the time of your life when you're trying to form a positive character. And if you're just so beaten down, often the best you can do is just form a character of being someone to be really feared. Now, she lived, didn't she? She lived. Um, she didn't kill herself afterwards um but she was uh, incarcerated for the rest of her life she's i think she's in her 60s now and she's at frontera uh the woman's prison in california 
And she spent her whole life in prison from the age of 16 up until now. And she goes up for parole, and every time she goes up for parole, the parents or the relatives of the children who were wounded, actually in that shooting she wounded the kids, but she killed two adults. But their families come in, you know, and this happens pretty much with most people who were, who were sentenced for homicide like this. They come in and they give their testimony and you know, there's no way you can let these people out on parole. And and no. I don't know how she would survive in the outside world anyway. She has no none of the survival skills that you need. So, Other than the rifle. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so now, one of the, I mean, I guess the big question that surrounds analysis of these events is how do we stop them? How do we and, stop them? Yeah, how do we I mean, stop I mean, the beeping? People have... <laughs> I apologize for the beeping. I suspect it's me, actually. But um, just just don't get don't get upset enough to shoot. Is all I ask. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I'm a peaceful person. I'm a <laughs> Cause, cause there, there's there's a, there's a lot of talk after all of these events that you know um, you know people are angry at the shooters. Obviously, people in a couple of incidents have gotten angry at those who you know bullied the shooters. Um, but it, it, there doesn't seem to be a way, I don't think, to end bullying nationwide. Is there a way, however, to, to look at some of these other factors and try to reach out to people who are at risk for, for picking up a gun? Well, you know, I would I would argue with you about whether or not we can end bullying nationwide. There have been a lot of changes, it seems like, to me, and there's been a lot of emphasis on it uh, over right. the last 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, this country has accomplished remarkable things considering the en- enormous size of it and the tremendous diversity of people that we have living here. And um, we've just elected uh, an African-American for president, and I think we could probably do anything we set our minds to. And ending bullying will only improve things for everyone there is an enormous need to have a scapegoat, to have someone who is beneath you and somebody you can kind of kick and throw things at, but we don't really need that. And we can use our schools to create a different uh, a different kind of culture. Now, um, Sweden has actually done this. Um, Sweden had some horrifying experiences in the 19, uh, early 1960s um, with children committing suicide as the result of bullying. And they got a Norwegian psychologist named uh, Dan Olwes, who is considered the international authority on this. And um, he came to Sweden and instituted this nationwide anti-bullying program. And one of the reasons why it's successful is because it is nationwide. Um, It goes from the individual to the family to the school to the community. So everyone is involved in it. And, in fact, the level of bullying has been greatly improved. We don't have to get rid of it completely, but we really need to reduce it. And and part of it is the favoritism that um, schools show toward athletes and the discrimination toward other people, you know, people of minorities, uh, people who look different, uh, people who are socially inept, um, really get the crap kicked out of them. Um, and uh, sports stars get treated like uh, stars. Yeah, Do you think I that's think changing that... at all? Hmm? Are we seeing any changing uh, change of, with that? Oh, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. 
I don't go around to schools very much at this point. Um, I couldn't tell you. Uh, and I think that's something that will take a little time. One of the problems with that, and this is a very interesting fact, is that um, many schools, the principals and the assistant principals are formerly um, athletic coaches uh, because athletic coaches, um, the perception is that they're very, and this is often true, is that they're very good at taking a lot of kids and um, creating order among them, you know, and getting them to sort of behave um, and they're very social and personable, and many of them have been with the schools a really long time. So they often kind of escalate up to uh, administrative positions uh, in the school and on the board. And there's just going to be a natural tendency for them to favor the athletes. That's interesting. I, um, I'm just thinking about my high school experience because it's really hard to remember any farther back than that, you know, because I'm decrepit. <laughs> And uh, but uh, high school specifically, it, it was a, a very um, well Chagrin Falls High School in uh, in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and very athletic oriented, um, typically pretty successful in in many sports. Uh, at, you know, at any given time, a lot of emphasis on it, a lot of pride in it. Uh, upper middle class, I suppose, uh, but with you know some variation, and uh, pro- probably more upper middle class now than when I was there. It was probably closer to middle class when I was there. But anyway, the the kind of the, the two leaders in that category were the football coach who was who was nationally known. Um we had won uh uh or or had come close, you know, in, in our division uh you know, state titles and this guy was just renowned. He's also a history teacher and then the athletic director. And they were both, you know, kind of tough, really gruff, uh, jokey, just really, you know, pretty typical uh, what you'd expect personality-wise from people in those positions. But here's the difference, and it made all the difference in the world. They both really emphasized character, and they really emphasized that uh, you treat all people with respect and that people have different abilities and they both emphasized that how much they respected, and certainly in the classroom, because I had the football coach uh, a couple times um, for history, really emphasized the importance of academic and intellectual achievement and, and really showed a lot of, of, of deference in the classroom to people, you know, really just purely based on that. And if anything, they sort of downplayed the athletic side of things. And so between these two guys, uh, you know, acting that way, behaving that way, and setting those standards, it really was quite a, a civil environment for, you know, uh, suburban Cleveland, Ohio, rah-rah, gung-ho athletic community in the, in the 70s. You know, it could have been an entirely different environment. But these guys, they were... A super successful, B really well respected, and um, you know the, I think the parents uh, and, and certainly the kids, certainly the less athletic or non-athletic kids, really appreciated that and respected that, and, and I think that really improved the the environment of the school. And uh, you know I kind of took it for granted that was somewhat normal, although certainly my my junior high, which was in California, was completely different, but. You know, I I almost 
took it for granted after being there for high school that that was fairly normal. But certainly I've come to realize now that it's not all that normal, and it was really a, a, an excellent situation to be in. It's, you were very lucky, and this varies a lot from region to region of the country and from one time period to another. So in the, when I went to high school in the 1960s, um, I went to Music and Art, which was a high school in New York for uh, supposedly artistic students, and there wasn't any sports at all there. And, uh, you know, New York schools are not famous for their sports. Uh, so it really is it really is regional. And uh, and then, of course, in the 60s was uh, probably not the best time for high school athletics either. Well, I yeah. I don't know about that. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it was uh, – I mean, I've come to realize after the fact, you know, that that really was – uh, uh, you know, relatively unusual situation, and that uh, they these were two really very enlightened guys. You know, and they, yeah. and they were kind of able to have it both ways. They were successful at athletics. They were, you know, they were they had teams that were great, and and people who who went on to uh, you know major college scholarships. We even had people go into the pros uh, from a you know small school. It's only I don't know eight hundred yeah. four grades. That's pretty and, exciting. It is. It is. Yeah. And I, I, I only lived in Chagrin Falls for three years, uh, you know, to the years that I was 10 through 12. And yet it was just a really less than indelible mark on me. And I, I still have really close friends. don't see them that often, but still have very close friends from high school. And I, I think, you know, the environment that was fostered there, um, you know, is, is part of why I, I still feel really identify with the town, uh, you know, from all those years ago. And and with the people there, yeah, I, I I've been to Cleveland a lot, and I I really like it. It seems very civilized. Um, so, okay. So the other thing, if we're not going to have anti-bullying programs, the other thing we we need is is a different kind of gun control. Um, because none of these shootings would have happened if guns weren't easily available to the shooters. Um, one of the things I write about in my book, Ceremonial Violence, is the name of the book, and in the final chapter I write about gun control, and what I do is I reimagine one of these shootings taking place um, in the 1850s, and how difficult it would have been for these kids to get their hands on a gun, and what would have happened if they had committed the same kind of crime using slingshots. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, it goes from being a horror story to a kind of a Mark Twain story where the kids get in a lot of trouble, but they learn a lesson and they're punished and they become better people as a result of it. So, you know, that's a kind of an interesting exercise. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. In fact, it was very difficult to get guns prior to the 1960s when because of revolutions um, in smaller countries around the world, there emerged this enormous uh, arms production market in Israel and the Soviet Union and China, um, where they were making weapons uh, at a tremendous rate and selling them internationally. And they became very cheap and very available. Uh, but you can't commit a school shooting unless you have a semi-automatic weapon, you know, a weapon where you don't have to take a minute to um, put in a new shell, you know, where every time you press the trigger, it fires. 
Um, and they're, you know, they're very easily available. Everybody knows the story about Columbine, about them buying them at the local gun show and not having to fill out any paperwork and, you know, bringing their friend along who was 18 to buy it for them, to buy their guns for them. Um, so what we need is uh, some kind of uh, some kind of way of keeping guns out of the hands of children. Well, that's for sure, and you get get no argument from me. I'm man, I, I'm kind of all over the place, you know, politically or policy wise. I, I end up kind of in the middle somehow, just but not by issue by issue. It's it's just kind of by by mathematics, I end up in the middle. But I, I'm I'm for very much for strong gun control. Uh, I, I've never been interested in guns. I've never, yeah. you know, I've barely fired a gun in my life. Don't don't have it. Don't have it in the house. Don't want it in the house. Uh, well, a lot of these, a lot of these shootings take place in states where there's a tradition of shooting, of uh, hunting, um, that's very dear to people. And sometimes there are multi generational traditions of passing passing your gun on to a to a child when he gets to be 12 or 13. And uh, you know, those are. Those are beloved rituals, you know, just like anyone has rituals. They're very, very important to people, even if they no longer have to hunt to survive. Um, and if you're living in Alaska, you know, out in the will I'm, tr- I'm sort of trying to take the other point of view here. I'm playing the devil's advocate. You know, if you're living out in Alaska and you're, and you're all alone in the winter and there are black bears and uh, and who knows what else, out there, you know, you really want to be able to protect yourself, you know. So it's not it's not a easy it's not an easy problem. And of course, the NRA is a tremendously powerful lobbying uh, force. Um, but I think there are ways to do this. And again, you know, we've accomplished remarkable things as a country. I think we can do this. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, ultimately, this really does come down to political will. Um, uh, I agree. There are absolutely there are circumstances, you know, pr- pretty much any rural circumstance where there are plausible reasons, you know, to have a gun. There's there's times when you would need to defend yourself. And in the broadest sense, uh, I, I certainly understand the importance of um, you know having having an armed citizenry in terms of uh, defending itself against tyranny. That makes sense. We were watching the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Uh, which my kids love, which I find hilarious because they're, I mean, it's my little kids. <laughs> they're yeah. four and nine. They think it's movie. the funniest thing ever. But, you know, it, on a serious note, we were saying, uh, my wife and I were saying, well, you know, it's probably a good thing that those some of those people were armed. You know, I mean, what if your island was invaded? You know, I mean, if you're not armed, what can you do? Nothing. So, I mean, I, I, it, it's purely on a personal level that I'm I'm not interested or that I have a uh, sort of a visceral, visceral reaction against, in fact. But you know, I, I'm not a uh, absolutist by any means, and I, and certainly up in Alaska or, or you know any any rural environment, any we have there's plenty of hunting around here. They just had deer season. There's something like thirty two thousand deer were shot last weekend or the week. And no people. That's and no people. Amazing. It is amazing. That's that's good because that's yeah. not always the case that no people get shot. 
So yeah, we were we were glad to hear that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I still have never heard an explanation of that fits into those what to me are rational scenarios of why you need semi-automatic or certainly automatic weapons in order to accomplish the the plausible goal. Well, no, you know, none of these students, none of these shootings involved automatic weapons, and automatic weapons are not so easy to get. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't make that much difference. Liberals, of which I proudly include myself, but um, one of one of the shortcomings is this kind of lack of knowledge about guns. And everyone says, "Oh my God, they had semi-automatic weapons!" But of course, we've had semi-automatic weapons since uh, I guess World War One. And um, you know, most weapons are semi-automatic at this point. Um, and of course, automatic weapons. Um, you know, you don't really need unless you're uh, a SWAT team or you're storming someplace or, or you're in a war. Um, but that's not going to happen here in Rhode Island, probably. Right. Well, yeah. um, <clears throat> the book is Ceremonial Violence, A Psychological Explanation of School Shootings, and its authors outlined a bit of uh, what, he, what he says are the contributing factors, the different things that come together and uh, obviously has some ideas about how to uh, avoid future shootings. The website for the book is ceremonialviolence.com. And uh, thank you very much for talking with us tonight, Jonathan. Okay, and, and Eric and Philip, if I can just add, this is uh, any of your listeners who are interested in Columbine, this is probably the most detailed um, narrative of the Columbine shooting that, they're, that anyone is going to find anywhere and also very detailed story descriptions of the of the uh, 13 school shootings that took place between 1975 and 1999. Very important work, very important information, and yeah, I mean, everyone, uh, the, there's still a lot of interest. I was completely sucked into it and fascinated at the time because it's just, it's just so horrifying. And, and the the details of the Columbine one just seem to sort of transcend, you know, even beyond the the, the quote unquote typical. Although of course, the the violence level was then transcended once again at uh, Virginia Tech. But uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic, and and really enjoyed talking with you. And we you know love to have you back on and talk more about it. I have to tell you, for some reason, I wasn't as fixated on Columbine as a lot of people. I um. I guess I'd just been beat up too many times to not feel a certain small, tiny, teensy, wincy. I don't know. Sympathy's not not quite the right not quite the right word. Empathy's not quite the right. I guess I guess maybe I related to them too much, and so I, I didn't really want to hear them either lionized or or trashed. I'm not sure what. Anyway, <laughs> that's I guess my own psychological issues. Well, this is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and me, Philip. Uh, join us each Wednesday night live at 9 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And let's move on. Our next guest made his first million dollars by the time he was 16 years old and was the CEO of a publicly traded company at 19. He describes himself as a wealth engineer. The best website for him is probably Efren.com, E-P-H-R-E-N.com. His name is Efren Taylor, and he is our guest on BC Radio Live tonight. Welcome to the show, Efren. How's it going? Let me try that again. Sorry. Welcome to the show, Efren. 
Oh, I can. I think we can hear you now. Okay, I think we got a good feed. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, welcome to BC Radio Live. I, I have to tell you that uh, I was I was uh, doing a little bit of research just on your bio, and it's it's pretty impressive. Um, may, what 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 would you say actually that uh, that you're most proud of that uh, that I didn't mention during your introduction? Hello, Efren. I think it sounds like we're having just the you know phone connectivity issues. Um, is Efren on a cell? I'm guessing. Oh, there we go. We uh, we lost the uh, call completely, actually. So we've had the we've had the beeping, which turned out not to be me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and uh, now we're having trouble connecting phone calls. So interesting. Okay. Well, hopefully Efren will call back. Hey, here I'm back. I think Blog Talk. Kick me off. Oh, Rat bastard. Okay. Oh, dirty rotten scoundrel. You sound now. <laughs> you're coming in loud and clear. Yeah, Very. I was like, got a good feed. Uh, we did one before on Block Talk, and I remember one time uh, we were doing another radio show. And all of a sudden, it just went blank. The uh, host went blank. Uh, we went blank, and everything. We're like, what in the world was going on? But I'm back now. Glad we got a good feed and everything. So I'm just excited to be here this evening. So. Got the first part about the the bio piece. Yeah, we're jealous of you, man. Millionaire at sixteen. What a what a jerk. How could you do such a thing? <laughs> oh man, it was a little bit of a hard lot of. I think a lot of people say it was a lot of hard work, but I went through a lot of persecution, so and rejection and everything else. And so, when well, starting off at a young age, um, I would say where girls wouldn't give me the time of day. Uh, you know, that freed up a whole lot of free time. You know, to really focus on entrepreneurial endeavors, but. You know, I had a lot of good mentors who pretty much taught me the ropes on as far as raising capital, starting companies, and putting in the fundamentals. And I was just able to raise about almost three-quarters of a million dollars in high school. I had a three-and-a-half million-dollar company, 13 employees. But the coolest piece was my high school history teacher quit his job to actually come work for me while I was still in high school. <laughs> that, man, talk about satisfying. How great is that? Yeah. Take I would have done a dance forward. around the room, man. <laughs> oh my goodness! I mean, it, 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 it was interesting, but now uh, by day I just help other people become self-sufficient, and just trying to help uh, other individuals, you know, make a change in the community. What was I'm just certainly we want to get into that and what you're doing now, but I'm I'm just curious what you know what was that first business and and what was the you know I mean how old were you when you actually had that idea? Because it must have taken a little bit of time to put all this together. I mean, you know, what was the actual specific impetus of that? Because, look, there's plenty of people who don't do all that great with girls, you know, in high school, and they're not millionaires at 16. <laughs> well, I was determined uh, to get the car. Well, actually, the story starts a little bit earlier. Um, it actually starts when I was 12. Um, I developed a knack for uh, computers, and we didn't have a computer at the house. And so what I started doing was I always wanted video games. I was telling my parents, you know, Buy me a new game, buy me a new game. But, you know, usual parent answer is no. And um, my mom jokingly said one day, why don't you go figure out how to make your own game? And uh, by a, a couple of circumstances, I was able to pick up a book. Um, my parents bought it for, it like, I think almost $50 at the time. And I taught myself how to program computers using the school computers um, that was there at my middle school. And I started developing video games and selling them to students. And so I took that skill set later on in high school. And the reason why I probably didn't have luck with the girls I got picked on all the time because I was a computer geek. 
Um, but one day in history class, the same teacher who quit his job ended up working for me. Uh, one day in history class, here we are, we're, we're uh, doing a, supposed to be doing a, a homework assignment, but on the back of this history homework assignment, we started writing out this business plan and say, hey, how can we help students find jobs online? Because as a 16-year-old student, you just don't go to, you know, uh, the newspaper to find a job or you don't go to the, uh, you know, moss.com because, you know, you're stuck in school for 9 to 5. But where were the high-paying jobs for high school college students? So we created this website built it out and started selling these advertising posts to major employers like Pizza Hut, Papa John, Sprint. We had the military client, about 200 clients. They were paying us this money to advertise to that market. And uh, we brought in some investors. We got turned down, though, 65 times before we even raised our first dollar capital. Wow. And it was like all the venture capitals were laughing at us. They all said we were too young, didn't have enough management experience. Uh, the idea will never fly. Employers will not pay to market towards high school students. But, you know, we didn't have the money really to run Super Bowl ads, so we started using PR. And we ended up getting into the local newspapers like six times over a six-week period. 30,000 students slammed into our website. Then everybody wanted to pay attention. Wow. Where was this? What city? This was in Kansas City. It wasn't in California. It wasn't in New York. No Silicon Valley. I guess Silicon Prairie. If they yeah. want to call it. <laughs> but uh, we were in Kansas City. So, I mean, hands down, if I would have been in another city, I probably would be a billionaire by now. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. It was a great uh, training ground. If I would have been in San Jose, man, we probably would have got like $50 million or something. Uh, ridiculous just being on the elevator. But, you know, nobody can really see the idea. So, uh, But we, we ended up being in like the New York Times and about a whole bunch of other newspapers, you know, these kind of these – country boys out of Kansas, you know, actually made something happen. So it was a pretty cool venture. It afforded me a great lifestyle, you know. Yeah, I made the money. I was able to retire at 19, but got bored out of my mind. <laughs> and, you know, came out of retirement and started doing social uh, change and justice. <laughs> amazing, amazing story. How old are you now? I'm 26 now. Wow, you're old, man. Yeah, I'm piling on the years, man. You know, and you know what? It is true. I am getting older. You know, the... Uh, this is how you know you're getting older. One, the car insurance company decides you're more responsible and drops your insurance rate. Plus, you can rent then, cars now. Yeah, that, that happens oh. at 25. I love that. It's the last big milestone. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, do you know how embarrassing it was to be the CEO <laughs> of a public company, and every time we would go out of town, I had to some ask somebody to escort me because I could not rent the car. I believe it. It's hysterical <laughs> to think about it. I could not rent the car, so I could never drive. So all the old trips I had to ride, uh, another seat, and I'm boss. I can't rent the car. You know, somebody else has to rent the car. It was just stupid. And no, no matter, I mean, people even recognized me at the counter. Still couldn't rent the car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it oh, was I, I really, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, what a great story, you know. Gosh, and, and, and no wonder that people are responding and, and are interested in, and what you have to say, say in your advice. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. What, as I understand it, I just just looking at the, you know, the info uh, via the site and and the PR stuff that uh, that you're helping people out. Obviously, these are really tough times. It kind of hit, it kind of hit and hit hard. And you have advice on what people should be doing, saying that the you know the conservative route is 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 not the way to go, and that uh, people are losing money, uh, you know, investing in uh CDs or whatever, you know, anything under I guess you're saying about 5%, you're you're losing money to inflation, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at inflation right now, where things are, uh, you know, basically, I mean, I had to put it out there, but a bank CD is just a rigged show game. I mean, let's think about it. You know, inflation's at 5%, and then the bank has the audacity to say, hey, how about you loan us money, and we'll pay you 2%. And then if you turn around and try to get a mortgage from them or a car loan, they want to charge you 6 7 8 9%, depending on your credit, even higher than that. So automatically, the system is set up in the favor of the particular institutions. Mutual funds, we saw how well that worked out, and the stock market, it is what it is. It's literally a, a legalized casino. And my, my advice, you know, to a lot of people out there, and like for many of our clients, the reason why they're doing most are doing it over 10% this year in the middle of a recession while everybody else is down is because we go completely against the grain. And for so many years, there's been dismissed and conventional wisdom that's been thrown out, but everybody is seeing now because of the particular markets being exposed that that's normally wrong. And it's usually just well-placed marketing by the larger firms to get people to invest in their products so they can make tons of money off of it, whether they're making money or not. So what I see you have three steps to financial recovery. What would those be? <laughs> well, you know, they, they almost just on a daily basis. As, you know, as I watch news on CNN and CNBC, it's like the market's up, the market's down. The market's up, the market's down. But the three steps that I say uh, to financial recovery, especially for this market, especially for the American people, the first step is to pretty much slap yourself and realize that, yes, it is bad times. You wouldn't be surprised how many people I talk to who are still in denial that, you know, Rome is not burning. <laughs> the house is burning down. Get out the house. And so as an individual, you have to wake up and say, all right, look, Yes, there's a dire financial situation out there, but if you panic, uh, you will definitely uh, begin to not only lose money, uh, but you also lose your objectivity. My parents always told me if you lose your temper, you automatically lost the argument. So what you have to do in economic times like this is, one, aware of the particular se session, and that's being aware, being engaged, and being informed. Yes, tune into the news. Become educated on the things that are going on so you understand the terminology that's been thrown out there. Don't just take your retirement statement and throw it off into the cabinet somewhere and say, you know what, it's just going to go away. It doesn't work like that, especially in times like these. And the second thing, uh, once you get you know, pretty much acclimated, everything is going on, you start assessing your financial situation and being very realistic of where you are on the retirement side, on the debt side, and the schedule side, the third thing that you have to do is being able to make a decision to do something about it. And there's a lot of people who right now, you know, uh, who honestly, you know, it's, you know, it's understandable, but are kind of frozen and poisoned by a lot of the information out there where they refuse to make a decision. A lot of people believe that, you know, what is down right now, so let me pull my money, when in actuality they should be buying more. Um, or, you know, they look at saying this would be a bad time to buy real estate. Well, you know, this is the best time to buy real estate because this is when wealth is actually created. Everybody's going to foreclosure, great. That means houses are cheaper. You know, that means stocks are cheaper. That means mutual funds are cheaper. So the third thing is being able to make a decision, going out there and taking advantage of the buying opportunities. And as soon as you can let go of some of that fear, you'd be amazed at the amount of transactions that are there. Another thing that I recommend for individuals is be the driver of your financial destiny. That means fire your banker, fire your financial advisor, and take control of your actual accounts and build yourself a team of educated people who have your best interests at heart, who are not commission-driven, who are going to be able to work with you and be able to find those particular opportunities and put them in your portfolio. Wow. Well, that makes sense. 
we've got we've got less than a minute uh, before we uh, our live show ends. So I want to remind people your website is uh, ephren.com. We've got links from there to a number of other websites. Um, and uh, so, it, am I hearing correctly though that you believe that we've maybe not overall hit bottom, but that uh, you know that prices are low enough now that they're not going to get much lower and that they will recover over the next year or two? Well, I know we've got a quick minute. I can go into it forever. Uh, right now, you know, we have not hit big bottom. One of the big three, I believe, has got to go. Uh, it's just a matter of which one it's going to be. Uh, so regardless of a bailout or not, one has got to go. And so after that happens, there's a major, you know, a separate industry being affected, then you'll begin to see the turnaround. So basically, as soon as we can get this whole Detroit thing over with, we can begin to start the turnaround. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's probably not going to be Ford because they got the most money. So it's either going to be Chrysler or uh, GM. And Chrysler's always been the little guy. Yeah, I would probably see Chrysler probably falling off to the wayside. I don't even know why they even exist anymore. Who drives a Chrysler still? So. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> know what their cars are. They, they were bailed well, out once before. Yeah, I think back in the 70s we loaned them a whole bunch of money. These guys, my whole life, as I can remember, that I've been alive, I have never seen an auto company profitable. Ever. It's always been, they've always been in trouble. So I'm like, why would we keep bailing them out? <laughs> so. I, I saw a poll results on CNN.com earlier. They said that uh, 61% of Americans do not want bailouts for the big three automakers. And I immediately thought, how horrifying. What's wrong with those other 39%? Yeah, exactly. My deal is, I know, I know it may sound harsh that, you know, there's a lot of people in Detroit, there's one in 10 Americans who work for the auto company. Unless these companies make some very dynamic shifts in the way they do business and their ideologies, I mean, they just will not be able to compete in the global world. How is it that you can have Tata Motors buy Jaguar, they're profitable out the gate, and it made their money back in the first two years? Ford couldn't do it for what, how long they owned it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just it just blows my mind. Uh, but the thing is, for what I advocate for a lot of people is just, look, take control of your retirement money. Some smart investments, find some good savvy guys around you, you help. Know, it's just drop us an email. All right. Well, very good. Uh, thank you very much for your time tonight, Efren. That was Efren Taylor. Uh, we have reached the end of the, the phone. The phone dropped out at a very propitious time. It, it is. <laughs> uh, we've reached the end of the show, so please join us again next week. Uh, thanks, uh, in addition to Efren Taylor, thanks also to Jonathan Fast and Arden Kaywin from earlier in the show. And, of course, special thanks to Lisa whom I'm going to blame for the uh, beeping on the, during the show today, primarily because I've muted her and she can't respond, and uh, also to Eric for hosting the show. I'm Philip Wynn. This has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live, to participate in the chat room, and watch the live video feed. You'll be able to see the, uh, the cursing that Lisa's doing at me right now in the chat room. If you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. No, Lisa, your phone is not perfect. Until next week, aloha.